final person interviewed for this program is Miss Molly Moran, who presented cases from her practice to help demonstrate the impact of recent research in NHL and CLL. And to begin, Miss Moran presented a 65-year-old woman with follicular lymphoma. This is a gal who had a lump under her jaw. Her submandibular lymph node popped up. Went through a few months of primary care, dentistry, getting antibiotics and working things up, and certainly appropriately in a primary care world, if you have a lymph node in that region, you certainly first think about infection before you think about lymphoma or head and neck cancer or any of those things. This was a gal with a very healthy lifestyle, a Jehovah's Witness, which comes into play down the road when we talk about therapies for her, but a healthy lifestyle, a very supportive family, a widow, and just very upbeat Again, traveled from about two and a half hours and not really near any sort of major medical centers and maybe not even really near any minor medical centers, which made for difficulty as well. And so for her to get to even just the local hospital was a good hour's worth of driving. And to get to us is a three plus hour drive. She's got a daughter that lives near us and that's how she landed on our doorstep. But again, a few months of antibiotics and getting smaller and getting bigger and not really changing. Finally, someone does a biopsy on this mass under her jaw, and the biopsy comes back as a follicular lymphoma. It's a grade two out of three, which makes it a little bit more aggressive than a standard grade follicular lymphoma. They're divided into grades with the amount of how many aggressive cells per microscopic field. The less number of cells, the lower the grade, and the less aggressive the tumor tends to be. Again, B cells with the same markers that we talked about previously, the CD20, CD19. This one's negative for 5, negative for 10, negative for 23. Again, these subtle differences in the way that the cells mark and their maturity gives us a better hint as to where the tumor falls in its maturity and gives us an idea of where these cells are generated from and helps us to categorize it a little bit better. BCL2 positive, again, looking at some of the characteristics of the genes in the tumor, helping us to characterize it a little bit better. And how did you assess her from a patient education perspective? Again, was she asking a lot of questions? And what did you say to her in terms of long-term prognosis here? This gal wanted no part of the internet. She wanted very little in terms of information, would take the written information, but would sort of just shrug and say, well, whatever the doctor says, was very interested in alternative therapies and therapies that did not include medical intervention, certainly not oncology intervention, wanted to do more herbal-type treatments and holistic medicines, and came to us with stacks of magazines and brochures and things from her church. Her church was very important to her and still is very important to her in what the church would allow and not allow in terms of having interventions and treatments. And so she had a much different approach. And I think she understood the situation and that it was malignant and that this indeed was a tumor. But having been told that it was a follicular lymphoma and that it was a slow-growing tumor, and if you're going to have lymphoma, this is the kind of lymphoma you want to have, we're never going to cure it, and you're not likely going to need treatment from it, which was what she was told from the doctor before she came to us, put her in a much different mindset than someone who would, say, have a more aggressive tumor. And so I don't want to say lackadaisical, but certainly less concerned about getting something done sooner than later. The sense of urgency and emergency certainly had been waylaid in this patient. She was very much into her religion and very much into her church and really didn't want to think about doing anything in terms of what we had to offer right up front. So how did you deal with that? 
not made a deal, but talked about that we really didn't need to do anything right at the moment and that she was feeling well. And she really didn't have much in terms of disease, although it was a little bit higher grade than we would have liked to see. But certainly watching and waiting, as we call it, or watching and worrying, as they call it, taking a watch and wait approach is certainly a reasonable approach to the treatment of follicular lymphoma. Although I guess this one might be watching in alternative medicine, huh? It certainly had the potential to do that. And I believe she actually had gone to do the green teas and the, I believe there was one point in her life where she purchased anything in the health food store that said immune booster. And so, and who knows, harm or helpful, it's hard to say what some of these can do. But then when it came to treatment time, we had to explain to her that you really need to hold off on those kind of things because we really don't know the side effects to a lot of those and the potential problems that they may or may not cause while you're getting chemotherapy. So she was very much into the alternative, had done some healing prayer groups. And if nothing else, they made her feel better and that she was doing something. Well, you know, it's interesting that she actually shared that with you because I think we know that a lot of patients do those kinds of things and never let the oncology office know about it. Exactly. Exactly. And you find out about them sort of after the fact. And so she was very upfront about it and that this was what she was going to do. And I think, again, being a low-grade lymphoma, there was certainly the luxury of time in there to explore her process and then despite that, the lymph nodes started to get a little bit bigger and ultimately came down to have, requiring some treatment. What do you say to patients with follicular lymphoma like her? And maybe what did you say to her if it came up in terms of potential curability or non-curability? Yeah, that's always a subject that we talk about early on in the treatment is that we're not going to cure this. This isn't a curable disease. There are some studies that look at maybe curing it with bone marrow transplant. But for the most part, this is a disease that we're going to treat. It's going to come back. We'll treat it again, it'll come back, and so on and so forth. And certainly on the recurrence end of things, every time it comes back, the time that it stays away is a bit shorter, and it can also be a bit more aggressive. There's always a chance with these low-grade lymphomas that you're going to have a transformation to a high-grade lymphoma or a Richter's transformation. And then the whole game plan changes and the therapies change. But this is something we'll watch over time. And the nice thing about it is that we have new therapies that are coming down the pike that we never had before. We didn't have things like monoclonal antibodies more than 10 years ago. And so if we're talking about a 10 or 15-year period of recurrence and remissions, then the potential for new drugs is out there. Who knows what we'll try in the future? Before you get into what actually happened to her, I'm curious about a couple of developments in the last six months in terms of what your thoughts are and how it's affected, if at all, the way patients in your practice are managed. The first is the data set that looked at the combination of bendamustine and rituximab. And there was a big presentation in December that suggested that actually there was a German study where they actually saw greater benefit and less toxicity compared to RCHOP, which is what the first patient got. What did you all think about that data, and are you using bendamustine rituximab? I think that it's pretty exciting. And historically, what we have for follicular lymphoma is dealer's choice with no gold standard of upfront care. And so whatever you get, you get is reasonable. And even the NCCN guidelines have, you know, a list of 
eight or 10 options to choose from and varying degrees of toxicity and varying degrees of remissions and response rates, none better than the other. And certainly none have gone head to head either. And that kind of makes things a little foggy too. So bendamustine rituximab and the data that was presented at ASH is exciting to see something potentially making a difference. And hopefully it'll start to move up closer to the front line of therapy rather than a salvageable therapy, which it's been over the last maybe year or so as it's just coming to market in the United States. And so it'll be interesting to see how this data plays out long term. I think it's a well-tolerated regimen. I think patients do well with it. It's something that certainly they're able to do in the community. It's outpatient therapy. It's very predictable in its side effect profiles. And I think patients are tolerating it well. And if you're buying, you know, a four or five year remission period, and maybe even beyond that, again, who knows what we'll have in four or five years for them. One of the things that's interesting about bendamustine is it doesn't seem to cause alopecia as opposed to, for example, CHOP. How important is that to the average patient? I think that's a huge bonus to patients. I think that they're more concerned about it than we think they are. I think that people in general define themselves by their hair and their hairstyles. It's a very outward symbol of what's going on inside. And it's a daily reminder, as well as a head turner for other people. You sort of want to just blend in. You don't want people looking at you to say, oh, there's a cancer patient without their hair. And so I think that's significant. And certainly the lack of this side effect potential with the bendamustine and rituximab is appealing. You know, it's a two-day regimen which is a nice shortened up kind of regimen as well compared to some of the other regimens that we use once a month, which is nice as well. Especially in her case, if we were the closest cancer center that she could receive a regimen such as this, that would certainly limit some of the driving and that she'd only have to come up once every 28 days instead of 21 days, et cetera. How about globally? What have you seen in terms of, this, for example, bendamustine rituximab compared to RCHOP in terms of just how it affects people, you know, their fatigue level, their overall feeling? What you've observed just sort of overall in patients who get bendamustine rituximab, for example, compared to, say, RCHOP or RCVP, more sort of globally how they feel, how it affects them, and not just the hair loss, but overall about the same? Or I think it's probably actually a little bit better tolerated. I think that especially in an age group of patients who are teetering on that 60, 65 and above, RCHOP is pretty toxic chemotherapy even in the best of cases. And I think the fatigue level is quite a bit less in the bendamustine patients or patients who are getting bendamustine rituximab and certainly less mouth sores. There's not a lot of, although the risk is there, the neutropenic fevers and hospitalizations for neutropenic fevers doesn't seem to be there in the rituximab bendamustine arm. But it doesn't seem to be there much in the RCHOP, but certainly the risk is there. We tend to use growth factors as supportive care in most of these regimens, with the exception of maybe RCVP or single-agent rituximab, but certainly RCHOP and R-bendamustine for patients, you know, a little bit older with the risk factors that make them potential infection. Now, the other new research database, kind of looking back over the field that I think really sticks out in people's mind, was reported at the ASCO meeting recently, looking in patients, again, with the same lymphoma as her, follicular lymphoma, the issue of rituximab maintenance. So giving rituximab, in this case, it was people who got rituximab with chemo, but it also conceivably could be given just without the chemo, but giving it for two years instead of just the short term. And there a pretty significant improvement in the risk of progressive disease occurred. 
Again, what were your thoughts about that, and how do you approach that issue in your own practice? Our use of rituximab maintenance doesn't seem to be as high as the general community population, and I'm not sure if it's because until recently there hasn't been a whole lot of data to say what's the best way to give it, what's the best length of time to give it, and certainly from the ASCO data, that's you know a little bit more guidance in terms of how long to do this and when to do it. And, and so I think it's got its role. I always think back to the data that no matter where you get the rituximab, it's going to help you. And so if you got it either with the chemo or as maintenance, either way, you're going to get a benefit from it. And so I guess it varies from practice to practice. Again, hopefully as this data matures up some, we'll see the right standardization of the use of rituximab maintenance. There is not a dose-limiting toxicity of rituximab on the upside of that, or as far as we know, you can give it repeated times. When you give it more than four weeks in a row, you get some risk of cytopenias that pop up after the eight weeks of dosing rather than the four weeks of dosing. Again, in the patient tolerance, it depends on how much of a burden it is for this patient to receive the rituximab. The side effect profile is pretty tight on rituximab, and it's well-tolerated. But again, still therapy, and patients still have to undergo therapy. They don't tend to mind it as much because it's almost like a security blanket and that I'm still fighting this disease and another reason for them to come in and see you so you're able to keep a closer eye on them as well. And I guess there's at least one trial now looking at four years of rituximab versus two. What actually happened with this patient? As you said, initially she was observed, and then what happened? She had some additional lymph nodes coming up that were starting to cause some problems. They were starting to get bigger. She was starting to notice them more. They were starting to cause her discomfort. And so she went on to get four doses of weekly rituximab, which is part of its label indication and upfront therapy for follicular lymphoma. The appeal of single-agent rituximab in this particular patient was the Jehovah's Witness and that if we used aggressive therapies that might require blood product support, we were going to be between a rock and a hard place. And so using something that had lower cytopenias as opposed to an R-CHOP right up front or an RCVP made it more appealing. She was able to tolerate it and able to travel to see us and had significant response and all of the lymph nodes that were causing discomfort and that she could physically feel had gotten better. Any side effect issues with her? She didn't have any side effect issues. She had some infusional toxicities, very low, very minimal toxicities that required just a minimal hold the therapy and give it a half hour, some extra Benadryl, but didn't require steroids, didn't require meparidine, didn't require any other interventions. And not too uncommon in a low bulky disease with follicular lymphoma, the infusional toxicities tend to be more pronounced in patients who have a lot of bulky disease. And she did have bone marrow involvement. 40% of her bone marrow was involved. And that's always a risk for having higher risk of the side effects from the rituximab infusion. But she tended to do very well with it and was able to get through it with just a delay. And then certainly by the fourth dose, those side effects had abated and she tolerated it without any problem. Didn't lose her hair. You mentioned she had a lot of reluctance to receive sort of conventional therapy. Mm -hmm. How did it go in terms of proposing the rituximab? I'm guessing maybe she might have had an easier time dealing with that than with chemo. It was much easier to deal with, in fact, that you can say with confidence that this is not chemotherapy and this is a targeted therapy that really goes after the marked lymphoma cells. It only finds the cells that have the CD20 marker on them and that CD marker 
of 20 is not on your heart cells or your hair cells or your mucous membrane cells and that the side effect profile is very small on it and we use a lot of it and it's well tolerated and it's something we can do again and it's not going to close any doors for us in the future. We'll be able to treat with other medicines if we need to. It's unlikely to cure the follicular lymphoma, but certainly it's not unrealistic to think that we could have a two or three year remission for if not longer and think about what's next on the treatment plan. And so in terms of getting her with her convictions of alternative therapies, et cetera, this was an easier sell than anything else we could have given her. So she had a response and did real well on the rituximab, but then I guess things, as we might predict, got worse again. They got worse again, and that's sort of the pattern of follicular lymphoma. And hers, unfortunately, wasn't a long block of time, you know, better than a year or in a year range, and had some different presentation than Initially, she had a lymph node that popped up. On her second presentation, on her recurrence or relapse, she had some numbness in her hands and was starting to drop things and was seen by her primary care physician and did an MRI looking for some sort of pinched nerve or any kind of thing going on with neurologic problems. And she was found to have a cord compression that was biopsy positive for follicular lymphoma with the same grade two follicular lymphoma. Now, this is a bit different because this is outside of the lymph nodes. And generally, lymphomas that are outside of the lymph nodes tend to behave a little bit more poorly or more aggressively than those that are in the lymph nodes. This, however, was truly in the bone and not in the spinal cord. It wasn't a paraspinal mass. This was a bone presentation. Now, did she have disease elsewhere? She had a couple of lymph nodes that showed up on CAT scan and PET scan. The use of a PET scan is helpful in this type of a patient because, again, one of the things we're concerned about in low-grade lymphomas is that they'll transform to a high-grade lymphoma. And using a PET scan to sort of judge how much change there is in the SUV or the sugar uptake on a PET scan if we need to biopsy a different node and make sure that it's not an aggressive form of a lymphoma because this had certainly behaved a bit differently than previously. But everything on PET scan was about the same SUV, and so there wasn't any need to do any other biopsies than the bone in her cervical region. With the relapse of disease, we took a different course of treatment with R-CHOP because the lymphoma was, I guess, pathologically, it was still a grade two follicular lymphoma, but clinically was acting more like an aggressive lymphoma. And so RCHOP was the choice of therapy that was given. And this was a hard sell to someone who didn't want to have any chemotherapy to begin with, and now to say we're going to do aggressive chemotherapy for six cycles. But what did occur in this transition and this disease coming back was there was a large family discussion with her priest as well as the doctor and that this is where we are, this is the situation, how can we work through this? The minister couldn't tell us that we would be allowed to give her blood transfusions. That wasn't in his authority. Apparently that would come from higher up. But he did encourage her to take the therapy in that preserving life was a good thing to do. So did she have radiation therapy also to her cervical spine? She did initially. When she was first having the numbness and the tissue biopsy was done and it was diagnosed as the follicular lymphoma to prevent any further damage to her cord and any loss of neurological function, she was given radiation right out of the gate there. And certainly she had resolved all of her symptoms and did not have any further neurologic toxicities. And that's a good thing to keep in mind with these lymphomas as well, is that sometimes radiation and steroids is the immediate treatment to prevent 
some of this further progression because once you start to have neurologic damages, it's hard to predict what's going to resolve and what's going to come back. So it's kind of interesting to think back. I mean, this is four years ago in 2006 when this happened. And, of course, we didn't have these bendamustine rituximab data we were just talking about. Yeah. Interesting to think about, you know, if she presented today, would she still get the R-CHOP? Would she get bendamustine rituximab? What happened when she got the R-CHOP? She had a complete response. Everything resolved. Her bone lesions resolved. No real lymph nodes on exam. So she was called a PR for, again, it wasn't very durable because within a year she had lymph nodes that came back. How did she do in the R-CHOP? She did well. We were able to give her growth factor support. Fortunately, the cytopenias were not severe enough that she required any sort of transfusion support or any blood product support. And so she was able to stay out of the hospital by using growth factor GCSF, which was considered allowable through her belief system and that it wasn't a blood product. And so she actually did very well, you know, had all the side effects that go with it, some nausea and loss of hair. The other concern, too, was that using the Vincristin was with her numb hands and numb fingertips, you were concerned of whether you were going to be able to tease out the side effects versus the residual cord compression. But like I said, she had resolved all of those symptoms before she got R-CHOP. And so we were able to monitor her very closely, but then recurred within a year. Right. And then when she recurred, where was the disease? What was her symptom status? She had developed sub-Q nodules that were almost lipoma in their presentation. They were a little bit more firm, movable. There was one on her flank, one on her arm, and were increasing in size in a definite pattern. They weren't coming and going as follicular nodes often do. These were continuing to grow, and they were rebiopsied again, constantly looking for this transformation. And these were follicular lymphoma as well. She had a repeat of her bone marrow biopsy, which surprisingly was negative on her recurrence. It had been positive initially. And so the rituximab shop did a fairly decent job of cleaning up her bone marrow disease, but not so much her peripheral disease. And at that point, with a negative bone marrow and a recurrence of follicular lymphoma, without any other major problems, she didn't have any other real comorbidities, she got radioimmunotherapy, which was an option we didn't have 10 years ago either. So she was able to go on and get Zevelin with a good response. It was a concern. Zevelin has a very predictable thrombocytopenia associated with it at about six weeks after you get the therapy. And this was a bit concerning with her lack of wanting blood product support as well. And we watched closely and had fingers and toes crossed, and she was able to get through it without great difficulty and had about a two-year response to it. Can you explain how immunotherapy works? And you mentioned the bone marrow being negative. Why is that important in terms of radioimmunotherapy? Radioimmune therapy takes a molecule not too different from rituximab and attaches a piece of radioactive material to it. And so what you're able to do is give radiation directly to the source of the tumor because the monoclonal antibody seeks out the CD20 on the surface of the lymphoma cells and the radiation then is tagged along with it and the radiation is delivered right to where the lymph nodes or the tumor cells are. And so it's different than giving external beam radiation where you have collateral damage in the tissue that comes through as the radio beams come through the tissue and the healthy tissue whereas the radio-labeled immunotherapy goes directly to the tumor site. Not only does it knock out the cell that the antibody is attached to, you get some collateral damage around it because the radioactive piece is killing some of the cells in the immediate area of the monoclonal antibody. 
The bone marrow, we always check, and one of the indications on the label of the drug is the bone marrow needs to be less than 25% involved with the lymphoma because of the same concept of the scatter kill in the immediate area of the radio-labeled monoclonal antibody. And if you have lymphoma cells in the bone marrow and you're delivering a dose of radiation to the lymphoma cells, you're going to knock out some of the reserves and you can do irreversible damage to the bone marrow. What was the next step with this patient? She's had recurrence of her disease about two years later now, and she's currently being enrolled on a clinical trial to receive lenalidomide and rituximab. The lenalidomide as an immunomodulator in combination with rituximab monoclonal antibody. Now, we've heard a lot about lenalidomide, particularly in multiple myeloma. What do we know about it in follicular lymphoma? I think that's part of the question is we know that it causes cancer cells or lymphoma cells to be recognized by the immune system. And it does that by sort of revving up the immune system and so that they can recognize cancer cells. And so by using it in combination with the rituximab, the rituximab works by latching onto the tumor cell and it causes the other cells of the immune system to come in and destroy the cell that it's hooked onto and says, this is a bad cell, come in and destroy it. With the addition of lenalidomide, if you're revving up the immune system with the lenalidomide, you can get more activation of these killing cells, these natural killer cells, these T cells, to come in and destroy the lymphoma cells. And so by using them in concert, in theory, we should see better destruction of lymphoma cells. There are a multitude of clinical trials that look at lenalidomide in all different combinations of therapy. It's an oral regimen, which has appeal always in cancer patients. And so we're kind of excited to see how this will play out in terms of the follicular lymphomas. So it's been amazingly five years now since she's been diagnosed. When you look back, what's your overall quality of life been like and how have things progressed in terms of her relationship with your entire group and her feelings about treatment? Yeah, this is a gal who has maintained a performance status of zero, completely 100% active in everything she does. Her therapies have not inhibited her ability to travel and spend time with family. She's completely upbeat and has always been upbeat. We have, over the course of five years, have become well-known to each other as a group, both her family and our family or the practice, our group practice. And so the conversations are comfortable. It's easy to talk options of therapy with her. She's been treated and gone into remission on several occasions here, and so she feels very comfortable in the decisions that we make with her about options for therapy. She understands we all have the same goal, is that's to keep her around as long as we can. And so it's an easy relationship with an open dialogue. We understand her needs. She understands our concerns. There's little push-pull in the situation. It's always a very comfortable conversation. And I think that comes over time, too, in that you develop these relationships with patients over time, and especially in these chronic diseases, follicular lymphoma, CLL. These are patients who have chronic disease, and it's not uncommon that you would be in a relationship, a professional relationship with these people for 10 years plus. They call you about their family events. And that's always part of what we talk about in follicular lymphoma as well, is what are your short-term goals? What are your long-term goals? What's coming up in the next couple of Because a lot of times people say that. They say, I can't start treatment until September. Well, how come? 
And is it something we can work around? Is it something we can help you figure out when's the best way to time this therapy? Or did you schedule a cruise for August and we can't start your therapy till after the cruise? Or can we sneak therapy in before? And so there also are always important discussions as well. A lot of times the patient's afraid to have those with the doctor. And so when you're in the bedside nursing role and you're sitting with the patient for a couple of hours while they're reacting or not reacting to their rituximab, they may fill you in on some things that they're never going to tell the doctor because they'll think the doctor is going to think it's silly. And it's not. You know, we're not curing these people. And so their goals need to be, you know, factored into the therapy plan as well. 